time to go ahead and dismiss our children, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, can go with Miss Kimberly and Mr. Mario uh, to Kids Church. Uh, while they're leaving, Brother Chris, can you put that that uh, core of uh, the last verse of "Come Thou Fount" back up on the screen? Uh, it is my opinion uh, that Nick Lachlan wants you to go with him. <clears throat> it's my opinion that this last verse of "Come Thou Fount" is the greatest verse in all of the Baptist hymnal. Uh, so. Uh, for what it's worth, it says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. There's another uh, slide that comes after that. Uh, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, lead my, bind my wandering heart to thee. Here's my heart, Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. If we're honest with ourselves, even in the greatness of our effort to be faithful and to be righteous, we are, we are prone to sin. We are prone to leave the God that we love, knowing that He loved us, knowing that He gave His life for us, knowing that He has given everything for us, Our humanity and our sinful nature leads us astray. And yet it is God's grace that binds us. It is God's grace that keeps us. It is God's love that that binds us to Him. And and we, if it were up to us, we would would run as far as we can and then find ourselves empty and, and, and wandering and like the prodigal. But it is God who holds on to us. And, and as, as we sang this song, it was so, so powerful because I believe that, that as the Holy Spirit has orchestrated this service together, uh, this morning's message is on uh, how God loves us. And I believe that it is so, so appropriate this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at how Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And He called a child to Himself and set Him before them. And said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such as a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would reveal to us, in a way that only you can, the depth of your love for us. Lord, may we see in a new 
and fresh way this morning how much you love us. May your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit comfort us in pain and hardship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray this morning that if you, as you leave this place that you will know that you are loved. I pray that you know that you are loved not only by your family, not only by your friends, not only by, by those who tell you all the time that they love you, but I pray that you will know that you are loved by God. In this passage, the disciples were concerned about their place in the kingdom. The disciples were acting very childish. And if you've ever spent any time around kids, you'll, you'll, you'll get this. Uh, we have a school, an elementary school that meets here at this campus. Our junior high and high school uh, is over at the O'Neill campus. But uh, anytime, anytime the kids line up to go anywhere, there is a mad dash and a rush for them to be what? First. See, it's time to line up to go get water. And what does every child do? They run, they knock each other over, they, they're, they're, they're pushing each other down so that they can be first. And then whenever it's time to come in from recess, this I don't understand, they run and they knock each other down so that they can be first in the line to come in from recess. They always want to be first. Anytime the teacher asks for a volunteer, their, their, their hands shoot up and, ooh, ooh, me, 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 choose me, choose me, regardless of what it is. They don't even have to want to do what it is as long as, as, long as they get to be picked. And, and this is what the disciples were arguing about. Look at the text. Look at the text. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus and saying, hey, which one of us is best? Which one of us is, is, is the greatest? And my kids ask this question all the time. They say, mom, who's your favorite? And they ask, Dad, who's your favorite? And depending upon who asks me, then they're my favorite. If Daniel asks me, well, Daniel's my favorite that day. If Nicholas asks me, Nicholas is my favorite. If Anna asks me, then Anna's my favorite. And so, so it, it, it's an ongoing argument in my house as to who is, who is the favorite. Well, Natalie, just, she's, she just cops out and she just says, I love you all the same. No one's my favorite. I love you all the same. But, but I, I, I have favorites all the time. Well, this is where the disciples were. And I want us to understand why the disciples were asking this question. If we remember back in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 17, what has taken place? Remember Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked all the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps up and he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says in front of all the disciples... Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so the disciples are hearing Jesus give Peter all these accolades. And then immediately after, John, immediately after Matthew chapter 16, we have Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus takes Peter and James, and John, and they go up on top of the mountain, and on top of the mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. And so, coming down from the mountain, coming down from the mountain, Matthew chapter 18, the disciples are saying, okay, which one of us is greatest? Which one of us is going to, is going to be 
honored in your kingdom that is to come. Because the disciples are keenly aware that Jesus is talking about a kingdom that is coming. That they are keenly aware that Jesus is making messianic claims. That he is claiming to be the Messiah. That he is claiming to to come into the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are thinking in a very tangible, very earthly mindset. That Jesus is about to establish a kingdom. And I want to be first. I want to be heralded. I want to be, I want to receive glory. And so the disciples are acting very childish. We see other, we see other texts uh, in, in the other gospels where, where James and John are arguing and, and, and they're, they're talking to Jesus and they come to him secretly and, and, and they say, hey, whenever you get into your kingdom, let, let, let me sit on your right hand and let my brother sit on your left hand so that we can be in a position of glory. We can be in a position of honor, position of authority. They're thinking very tangibly. They're thinking, thinking very selfishly. They're acting very childishly. They said, we want to be first. The disciples came to Jesus childishly. And I want us to understand Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't correct their behavior. He doesn't. Look at the text. Matthew chapter 18, verse 2. Jesus called a child before them, set him down, and began to address their heart. Jesus didn't say, you bunch of idiots, you bunch of morons, you bunch of selfish prideful people quit worrying about who wants to be first Jesus did not address their behavior he didn't say quit arguing amongst yourself he did not address their behavior because the issue church is not our behavior hear this the issue that we have the issue that separates us from a holy God, the issue that causes us despair, the issue that causes us to wander from the God we love, is not our behavior. It is our sinful, wretched heart. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we understand the problem is not our behavior, the problem is that our heart is wicked, then we will begin to understand the grace that we've been given. The issue for the disciples is not that they were arguing about who gets to be first. The issue is that one of them wanted to be first. It was not the argument. It was not the, 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 the behavior that Jesus addresses. It's the heart. And I want us to understand in a very real and tangible way. Our problem is not that we lie. Our problem is not that we cheat. Our problem is not that, that we, we lust. Our problem is not that we have addictive behavior. Our problem is not that we smoke or drink or curse. Our problem is that our heart is wicked. Jeremiah says, beyond all things, he says, the the heart is deceitful. Beyond all things, who can know it? Our heart is the problem. And so Jesus doesn't correct their behavior, but he calls for a change in heart. I want us to notice the text. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like Children. That word converted 
literally gives a, a connotation in the original language of a complete transformation. Jesus doesn't say, unless your behavior becomes like that of a child. He says, unless you are converted, unless there is a transformation and you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes another very similar statement in John chapter 3 when he addresses Nicodemus. When he addresses Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, somebody who did not have behavior problems. Nicodemus is, is... the teacher of the law. He's probably the, the, the leader amongst the Pharisees. This is someone who kept the letter of the law to the nth degree, who not only kept the letter of the written law, but kept the letter of the oral law, that, that Nicodemus was somebody who crossed all of his T's, who dotted all of his I's. If there was anything righteous that, that, that he needed to do, he did it. If there was anything wicked that he didn't need to do, he didn't do it. This was someone who did not need behavioral change. He comes to Jesus and he says, I know that that you are from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless they are from God. In John chapter 3, Jesus interrupts Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus interrupts Nicodemus and said, let me me stop you right there. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. And Nicodemus' mind is just blown. He looks at Jesus and says, how, how, how can I be born a second time? Am I going to enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, not, not born a second time, but born from above. Unless there is a heart change, unless there is a conversion, unless you are born anew, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It has nothing to do with behavior, church. It has nothing to do with behavior. It has everything to do with the heart. In John chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses not behavior. He addresses the heart. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, You've already committed murder. It is not about our behavior, church. It is about our heart. And Jesus makes it very clear that unless we become like children, unless we are converted. And so what is Jesus saying? There is a need for fundamental change. Jesus rebukes their childishness and he says that there must be conversion to children. So what is Jesus saying? Well, let us look at at what it means to be a child. Children are desperately helpless. They're helpless. One of the greatest moments in our family's lives was whenever all three of the children could buckle themselves in a seatbelt. You laugh. But when all three of the kids could finally buckle themselves, that was a game changer. Because we could say, get in the car and buckle up, and it didn't take us 30 minutes, and we're climbing over seats and reaching over and, 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 and having to fight with, with booster seats and, and this and that. Whenever we could say, buckle up. And whenever our children could, could run their own bath water, and bathe themselves, all of a sudden, our nights 
became so much more enjoyable because we could say, go take your bath. And we didn't have to go in there and run their water and make sure it wasn't too hot and stop up the water, wash their hair and bathe them and dry them off and brush their hair. Now we say, go take a bath. Now, half the times we have to say, use soap <laughs> and shampoo. And then, and, then, and then Nicholas doesn't understand the, the, the purpose of a towel yet. And so whenever he gets out of the tub, he, he grabs the towel and drags the towel with him to his bathroom and thinks that that's drying off. And he's, he's, he's soaking wet and his, his, his pajamas are literally clinging to his body because he hasn't dried off and there's, there's water dripping everywhere. And we say, Nicholas, go dry off. I did. Well, that means that he grabbed the towel and walked to the bathroom or walked from the bathroom with the towel in his hand. That's, that's him drying off. But, but when our children go from, from being completely helpless to, to somewhat self-sufficient, it's a game changer for us because they no longer need us for every little thing. Now, in some ways, it's a blessing, but in other ways, it's reality that they are moving from children to young men and young women. Whenever Daniel's able to cook Easy Mac, begin to fix his own meals, whenever he's, you know, they can, they can pour their own cereal and pour their own milk, and whenever they can get themselves dressed and not look like they just came out of a thrift store, and... And they become self-sufficient. They move from being children to being young men and young women. And Jesus, the word used here in Matthew chapter 18, is not the word for adolescent. It's the word for children who are completely and utterly dependent upon their caretaker. Jesus is telling the disciples, unless you are completely and utterly dependent upon God for your salvation, for your righteousness, for your holiness, not by the works of righteousness that you do by your own means and by your own behavior, but unless you are completely dependent upon God for your righteousness, God for your salvation, God for your grace, God for your mercy, when you become completely dependent as children, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Do we understand our complete dependence upon God? Apart from His grace and His mercy, we are nothing. Apart from His love, we are nothing. The Scripture tells us in Isaiah, our righteousness are as filthy rags before Him. Apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ, nothing that we do is of any value. We spent this week, this Wednesday at the food bank, and, and we had you know, 30, 40 people packing boxes and, and, and filling cereal and, and doing all kinds of stuff for the poor and for the, for the needy. But apart from the love of God and apart from the work of God in our lives, nothing that we do is of any value. It is only God in us and God through us that there's value in our benevolence. Not only does Jesus call their attention 
to be converted as children, I want us to notice the uniqueness of children. In this culture, children were viewed very distinctly different than us. Our culture esteems children. Our culture puts children up on a pedestal. Our children, in in fact, in our culture, whenever we gather together with other families, who gets to eat first? The children. We said, let's go ahead and feed the kids. Now, Now, part of it is because we as Parents want to sit down with our other adult friends and we want to have a normal, uh, 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 edifying uh, meal where we can have a conver- an adult conversation without having little ones come up. I'm hungry, I want this, I want that, and us, us have to stop and cater to them. But that is new, church. That is a new phenomenon. Children, historically, have been, have been not esteemed. They've been looked down upon. In fact, up until recently, the children would only eat if there was enough food left over after the family, after the parents ate. And they would often have to eat in a separate room and they would get the leftovers. After all of the adults had eaten, after all of the adults had had had, had seconds or thirds, then whatever was left over was given to the children. We've heard the statement, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a reason. Because before there was running water, once a week the family would take a bath. And they would fill up the wash tub with water. And the man would take a bath first, first and, then, and then the wife, and then all of the the other adults in the household would take a bath. And then the oldest child, and then the next told his child all the way down to the baby. And by the time the baby had taken a bath, the water would be oftentimes so black that if the child was underneath the water, you wouldn't even be able to see it. And so the term is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. When you're dumping out the bathwater, be careful because you may throw out the kid that's in the bath because it's so dirty that you won't be able to see it. Today, the kids get the baths first. And the parents gets what, get, gets what is left over. That is so foreign to this culture in the New Testament. New Testament, children, you, you, you were not, you were to be seen and not heard. Your opinion was, was irrelevant. No one cared what you think. You were not, children were not esteemed at all. They were, they were often ridiculed. They were told to, 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 to get into the background. They were, there was not the esteem that children have today. They were lowly. They were looked down upon. And Jesus says this. He says, that which is lowly, that which is not esteemed, that which is ridiculed by this world, that is the kingdom of heaven. That is what I am going to demonstrate my grace and my mercy through. The uniqueness of children in the seeking of glory. I want us to see this. In the disciples seeking glory and seeking honor and seeking esteem. Who's going to be the greatest of your kingdom? What does Jesus point them to? The lowly. That which is not esteemed. And he says this. He says, look at verse 4. 
Whoever them humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is not about esteem. It is not about prestige. It is not about fame, fortune, glory. It is about humility. And then Jesus says this. Look at verse 5 and 6. Whoever receives one of these child, one such child in my name receives me. I want us to understand that in verse 5 and verse 6, the children are representative of all of those who come into the kingdom of God. Jesus has said, if you, if you become like a child, you, you, will be enter, you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so children now has a synonymous meaning with citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says in verse 5 and verse 6, if you become like a child, if you become a citizen in heaven... If you become as a child, then notice what he says in verse 6. He says, whoever causes one of these little children, one of these Christians, one of these citizens of the kingdom of heaven, whoever causes one of these who believe in me to stumble, it is better for you, better for him that he have a heavy millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. Jesus cares about his children. Jesus loves His children. Now, I want us to understand that God loves, and Jesus loves all children, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. But I want us to understand this in a very real way. Jesus has a peculiar love for His kids. There are... 170 kids that come to our school. I love every one of them. Some of them more than others. I love every one of them. The K4 and K5 are easy to love. They're cute. The 10th graders and 11th graders, not so much. That is, that is, that is a decision of the will. That we are going to love these children who, who smell and who, who are disrespectful and who talk back. But I love these kids. But I don't love them in the same way that I love Daniel, Anna, and Nicholas. Because they're my kids. I absolutely love children. But I have a very peculiar love for my kids. My wife saves everything, absolutely everything. Uh, in, in fact, she, she has these, these binders of artwork and accomplishments and certificates for our children. Now, Daniel, because he's the oldest, his binder's about that thick. And Anna's is a little bit thinner, and Nicholas is a little bit thinner. But she saves everything. I mean, you know, the, the, the little turkeys that they make with their handprints and uh, the, the little fingerprint stuff that the K-4 teachers do and the preschool teachers do and send it home. And, and you know, the, the drawings that our kids make that, that you can't even tell what they are. My wife saves them. Well, I want to put up a, a couple of pictures uh, that, that, that I want you to see. Uh, the first one is uh, the picture that Daniel drew. Let's put up Daniel's picture first. And this is, this is the first, one of the first pictures that Daniel drew. I think he was about four years old, and we can actually tell what it was. 
There were, there were, there were people and you can see, uh, there is, uh, the, the big one with the, with the yellow hair and the, the glasses or the, uh, the, the eyes and, uh, I think, I think this is, I think this is supposed to be Daniel. Am I right? Cause you have glasses. All right. Well, I think this is supposed to be Daniel. I believe that this one, that this one is Nicholas. I believe this is Anna. That's me in the background, uh, as, as, as appropriately. And then there's Natalie with her beautiful physique right there. <laughs> this is, now, now we laugh. That looks absolutely nothing like our family. But, but, <laughs> but a mom and a dad, we see this and, and we are beaming with pride. Why? Because our kid drew it. And we put it on the refrigerator, and you know we we scan it and post it on Facebook, and 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 we 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 want everybody to see the work of our children. Put up Anna's picture. This is this is Anna's rainbow. It looks nothing like a rainbow. It's not even curved. It's not even arched. But there's a bunch of colors. We had to write a rainbow because she told us it was a rainbow. And we knew that years later we would never be able to identify what this was. And so we wrote a rainbow. Now this looks nothing like a rainbow. And when when Anna comes to us and says, look, I drew you a rainbow at two years old. We don't look at her and we say, well, you know. That's not really what a rainbow looks like. I mean, rainbows are, are arched, and they have this sequence of colors, and, and, you know, there needs to be rain in the background. That's not a rainbow. No, what do we do? We take this rainbow, and we, we say, this is the most beautiful picture we've ever seen. You're, you're like a young Picasso. And, 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 you know, later on down there, and we, we foster that, that talent. In quotation marks. And then we have Nicholas's picture. Now, this is a recent picture. Nicholas drew a robot. That's a pretty good robot. Now, I'm not sure what these little spiky things are on the arms. And I'm I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what what some of the things are. But but this is clearly a robot. And, And we are so excited whenever our children bring us these pictures. Why? Because we love them. Because we love our children. And I want us to understand, church, that God has a peculiar love for you. Not only does He love you because theologically He has to, because God is love, and, and the scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 3, that, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, that God is love. He is. Theologically, He is bound by His character to love, because that is who He is. But I want us to understand that God loves us, not only because it's who He is, but God loves us because we are His. Not only does He love us, but church, He likes you. He is fond of you. You are His children. And if you have trusted in Christ, 
There is a peculiar love that He has for you. That He loves you not in the same way that He loves the world because we understand that God gives grace and there are those that, that God gives common grace to and God, the Scripture tells us in Matthew that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. That God gives blessings to the just and the unjust alike and that there is, there is what is called common grace. That, that God bestows His love upon all people. But God has a peculiar love for His. And God loves you in such a real way and you are valuable to God because God loves you and ascribes value to you. There is a peculiar love. These pictures of my kids are beautiful. Not because they're beautiful pictures but because they're drawn by my children. And as a father, when my kids run to me and they climb up in my arms, it doesn't matter what they've done that day. It doesn't matter that their room's a mess. It doesn't matter that They were just disobedient. It doesn't matter that they didn't eat all their supper. It doesn't matter that they didn't take their bath when they said, when I told them to take their bath, when they run up to me and they crawl up in my arms and they cuddle with me. We say our prayers and I'm loving them and hugging them. I love them because they're my children. And I want us to understand, church, that God loves you in a peculiar way. That He loves you because of who He is, not because of who you are and what you've done. That He loves you. And to to wallow in in guilt and sin and and the, the regret of what we've done is to disdain the grace that has been given to you. To wallow in self-pity and say that God could never love me because of this or because of that or that I am undeserving of the love of God or the, or the, the, the grace that He has given is to disdain the gift of Christ. And I believe that there are some of us here who understand cognitively, yes, that God loves me, but in a very real way, you are you are wallowing in guilt and you are wallowing in in pity and you are wallowing in regret because you don't understand in an experiential way the love that God has for you. He loves you. Not because of what you've done. Not because of the talents and the gifts that you bring to the table. But He loves you because of who He is. And He wants to pour out grace because of who He is. This morning, I am praying that we just sit for a moment and rest in the love of the Father. He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful.
that you love us. Not because of what we do. And we can come to you. And we can acknowledge, I don't deserve your love. But I am so grateful that you've given me your love. There's someone here who has been wallowing in regret. They feel that because of what I've done, that God could never truly love me, truly accept me. And this morning, God is calling you to run to His loving arms. Crawl up into those everlasting arms and find grace and mercy. God loves you so much that He sent Jesus to pay your sin debt. All we have to do is rest in His love and His grace. There are some of you here who are reluctant to serve because you think, what if I do it wrong? What if I don't do it well enough? May we come to God like a child holding that picture of a rainbow that looks nothing like a rainbow and say, look what I did for you, Dad. May we come to God with that heart that it is not how well we do but it's how well Christ has done there's some of us here this morning who need to rest in the love of God maybe you're a believer this morning maybe you know that Jesus is your Savior but you have been caught up in trying to be everything And God is calling you this morning just to rest in His love. During this time of invitation, let us be overwhelmed by the love of the Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name.